The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, for longtime listeners of our show, they will know full well that I am not a huge fan of the aid business. And a lot of my impressions of the aid business have come from basically 20 years of journalism and then working in Congo, in Kinshasa, where I was a, I worked for a company that was a USAID contractor. And I got to see how the US aid business works up close. And to me, it was absolutely alarming to see the incompetence, the corruption, the ineffectiveness, the arrogance. And that has really shaped a lot of my worldview about aid. And I've been corrected many, many times by people, and I have to keep reminding myself that just because the US AAID, the Agency for International Development, may have problems does not mean that all agencies that conduct aid and humanitarian relief are similar. And sometimes I've been accused of kind of putting all aid groups together in one in the West, that nefarious word, Cobus, the West. And uh, so I will admit up front that I do have some biases on this and my frustration with aid. And in part also because I've lived in Asia for a lot of my life, where aid was not the jet fuel that rocketed the Chinese economy or the Vietnamese economy or Taiwan. Uh, it was a lot of it was policy and good governance and reform. And aid was a part of it, but it wasn't the backbone of it. So those are my biases. And so, you know, when we talk about aid in Africa, particularly with related to the Chinese, it does come down to this East versus West and sometimes the different approaches that Chinese, Japanese, Koreans, the Europeans and the Americans all have to it. And Kobus, there are some really big differences among them. Especially now, because the aid landscape is changing so rapidly, um, new aid donors like China are coming up, and we at the same time we see a lot of a lot of ups and downs in traditional Western institutions. So you know the, the Western governments are not as into multilateralism as they used to be. And so there's been some some radical changes. So it's very difficult to kind of keep the entire landscape in in one's eye and to to know who's up, who's down, who the real players are. So today on the show, what we're going to do is try and challenge some of my own negative perceptions about aid and particularly about the United States. So I am open to to hearing what the data tells me about what people think of aid. And in part because a very interesting study came out and it was done by Aid Data. And a lot of you may know Aid Data as the organization that talks a lot about Chinese aid in Africa. And for the past couple of years, they have uh, they've issued a number of reports. We've had some Aid Data folks on the program uh, in previous shows. So if you're curious about it, definitely search for that. Uh, and, and they really kind of use these new methods to track aid and, and find money flows from China into Africa. And they've just launched this really, really big survey that came out. I don't think it's the first one. We'll find out. It's a survey of 3,500 policymakers in 126 developing countries that receive aid. So it is a vast, vast survey. 
And what's interesting, because obviously this is the China and Africa, we're going to focus on China's role. Uh, among the findings was China's expanding foreign aid portfolio is translating into greater influence with leaders in countries that receive aid, but it still lags very, very far behind the United States. And it really demonstrates that even in this era of Donald Trump that is so provocative, so controversial, there is still a lot of pent-up goodwill towards the United States that is coming out in the data. Uh, and so this this idea that because China is now spending so much on aid and spending so much to uh, to build infrastructure that is somehow going to overtake the United States, this report says that actually is is overstated. So when it comes to reputation and influence, according to the aid data report, Beijing is actually in the middle of the pack. And I was actually surprised in some instances it's uh, its positioning is actually going down. So and it's further behind uh, a very, very far behind countries like Norway and Belgium. So it'd be interesting to see uh, how they came to that. So we thought we would get right to the source of it. So we're thrilled to have Samantha Custers, the director of policy analysis at Aid Data. And for those of you, again, not familiar with Aid Data, it is uh, located at the College of William and Mary in Virginia. A very good morning to you, Samantha. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, let's talk a little bit about this survey, 3,500 policymakers, 126 developing countries. And I think we need to say up front that this was not a survey specifically focused on Africa, but obviously Africa is 54 countries. And so of the 126, uh, a significant portion of those, I suspect, were in Africa. So Africa's voice was likely to be very strong in this survey. But why don't you just, before we get too detailed into our discussion, tell us a little bit about how you compiled the report what was the methodology? And, and basically, tell us how you put this together. Sure. Uh, so this is actually the second of two surveys that Data has done. So the first was in 2014. The second uh, was collected in 2017 and analyzed just this year. And essentially, the, but the impetus for both of the surveys was the same. And it's the sense that, you know, when you talk about aid effectiveness uh, or the performance of um, aid donors, it, oftentimes, or the vast majority of times, you'll see that the, the assessments are conducted by experts. They're conducted at arm's length. It's what Western donors think about each other or what Western taxpayers or Western experts think about aid donors. But very rarely do you actually hear the voices from the ground. You know, the, the national leaders in the civil society, in the private sector, in government, in low and middle income countries, what do they think about their quote unquote development partners, the, the aid donors that they work with? And so the impetus for this survey was to, to answer that question. So we, over the period of several years, compiled a vast sampling frame of 50,000 different policymakers in 126 countries. And then when we fielded the survey, 3,500 of them responded and they shared their insights on various questions. So they talked about what their priorities were, what were the most pressing problems that their countries needed to solve. Um, they also talked about the challenges of pushing for reform in their country, who was on board and who was supportive of their efforts, where were they seeing the, the pockets of resistance. And then finally, and the focus of this uh, particular podcast is on performance. Performance not from the perspective of the experts, but performance from the perspective of partner countries. So they rated a list of 43 different uh, donors, both multilateral organizations like the World Bank or the UN as well as bilateral agencies uh, from China, from the U.S., many European countries. 
And essentially, we asked them who they worked with. And then for those people that they worked with, um, they got to rate the performance of these development partners on two criteria. So the first is influence. Um, so we define that as the power to change or affect the policy agenda. So when leaders are sitting around the table and making decisions about what policy priorities they should focus on in their country, who's around the table with them? Who are they listening to that has the potential to sway which things gets prioritized? And then the second was helpfulness. So essentially, once a leader has made a decision, I want to focus on this particular policy priority, who do they turn to when it comes to seeking assistance to implement that policy change? So once you have the idea on paper, how do you translate that into real world practice? And who did you find did the best, uh, you know, kind of according to these these two criteria? Like in, in the report, you mentioned that some that, that there were surprises where, where some smaller agencies scored very highly. Yeah, I think so you see several things coming out from the survey. So on the one hand, you have some of the largest players also perform the best. And we say that, you know, some donors seem to get a visibility or a familiarity boost. Uh, they're working with a lot of people. And so they tend to do quite well on influence and helpfulness. And so these would be some of the usual suspects that you might think of. So the European Union, the World Bank, UNICEF, the US and the UK tend to perform quite well across the board. But there are some surprises, as you alluded to. You know, there are some specialized agencies like the Gavi Alliance, uh, the Global Fund, uh, that are very, very active in the health space that do quite well. Um, also, what's interesting is that, you know, while we do see there is a relationship between the size of a donor's contributions and their influence and helpless, that's not always true. And sometimes you see smaller actors actually punching above their weight uh, in terms of their, uh, their influence and helpfulness. And so in particular, I think the Global Fund, Gavi, uh, and the UN agencies of UNICEF and UNDP actually are particularly adept in converting their modest means. So they all gave less than $15 billion in aid um, to countries included in the survey, and yet they're still jumping ahead many of the larger donors like Japan and Germany and France. I guess I was surprised when I saw the data how popular those institutions, many of them have long been aligned with Western governments. So the World Bank and the IMF have oftentimes had their interests aligned with the United States and, and European governments. And I guess, you know, over the past 50 years since decolonization really started happening in the second half of the 20th century, a trillion dollars of aid has been funneled from the West into the developing world. And it's in many respects not shown a lot in the way of results. And then on top mm -hmm. of that, there's been a lot of complaints from policymakers in developing countries that dealing with the U.S. and the European Union is extremely difficult. One, it's very, very bureaucratic. So there's a lot of paperwork that has to be filed, and, and they've complained about that bitterly. But then they've also complained about the conditions and the strings that come attached to the aid, whether it's structural adjustments from the IMF or whether it's political reforms that, that are imposed by the United States and the European Union. And so then the Chinese came along and they said, we're going to have a no strings attached. And the Chinese preferred not to deal with civil society groups, NGOs and other groups like that, or religious organizations. And they wanted to deal with elite government stakeholders, much like the people you're surveying here. And so it surprised me that the Chinese were ranked so low and the West was ranked so high, given the fact that the we've heard from a lot of people in the developing world 
is they prefer dealing with the Chinese because of the no strings attached. And so tell us a little bit about those perceptions, which apparently are not accurate according to what you're finding. So I think you have to look at this question of the role of actors like China and India and other kind of non-Western donors in two respects. So one is to look at how they're doing relative to some of these Western donors at one moment in time, but then also to look at their trajectory over time. So, you know, in both 2014 and 2017, what we see for China and India is that they are kind of relatively middle of the pack or towards the bottom of the pack um, in terms of their reported influence and helpfulness. But at the same time, since we've conducted two surveys now, so one in 2014, one in 2017, we can actually look at whether donors are gaining or losing ground vis-a-vis their peers. Um, And what we see there is a slightly different story. So we find that um, China and India are actually gaining stature in the eyes of um, people that they're working with around the world, but also in Africa. And um, if you look at the comparison between the two waves of the survey, China actually leapfrogged eight of its eight other donors in overall influence. So it moved from 29th place out of 33 in 2014 to 21st out of 35 in 2017. So, you know, on the one hand, you know, that's still relatively lower down, but it kind of catapults China into the middle of the donors. Um, And it's the only non-Western country that was able to accomplish that. And I think what's also notable is that this is the first year in which China actually nudged out Japan, uh, one of the major uh, donors historically. Um, And India is also doing quite well, particularly with regard to helpfulness. And so I guess what I would take away from that is... Yes, you know, it is correct that, you know, India and China are not at this moment ready to to eclipse the role of Western donors, but they are ones to watch. And I think that, you know, part of that, the driver of that could be that China and India and other non-Western donors are gaining sophistication and gaining credibility over time. They're professionalizing their aid operations. And an example of that was um, earlier in March of this year when China actually um, announced a new agency that would coordinate its aid cooperation efforts. That's a major signal of increasing confidence and increasing professionalization, whereas previously these aid efforts had been very much fragmented across different agencies, very difficult to coordinate, not very transparent transparent, um, relied much more on uh, financial investments than necessarily a cadre of experts and technical assistance. And so I think that, you know, what the story, the trajectory of our time is signaling is that the cachet of these these non-Western donors is rising, um, but that they also have a fair ways to go yet before they're able to surpass that of Western donors. And I think it's primarily because of one, familiarity you know, just the length of some of these relationships. But two, when you ask leaders in, in Africa and elsewhere, what makes a donor more or less influential or helpful? It, so they do value the expert. They do value the money, of course, <laughs> which isn't surprising, right? But they also value the expertise. They particularly said that the when donors open up access to human capital, in the form of best practices and lessons learned and expertise in different technical domains, that that is something that they highly value. And that tends to be an area where non-Western donors traditionally have been less strong. But I think that's going to change in future. And you do see some of that trajectory already happening. 
It's so interesting to to hear how you um, set it out. One of the issues um, you raise in the report is that, you know, traditionally China has this hands-off approach, this this, um, non-interventionist policy. And you make the point that to a certain extent that that tends to lessen their influence or lessen the the helpfulness of of the aid interventions because they are so hands-off about national policy. Am I understanding that correctly? Yes, uh, that is a that's what I would call the double-edged sword of of the of the uh, non-intervention policy. So, you know, leaders are complex in terms of what they want. Um, so, you know, it's striking to me that uh, we did find that donors that tend to give more in country programmable aid. So that means the the portion of aid that countries have more control over how it gets dispersed. Um, that tends to be associated with higher degrees of influence and helpfulness. Um, so they like having that that degree of autonomy. But you know, on the on the flip side of that, you do see um, this desire uh, where leaders will they say they want their donors to be more involved in working with the government. They want them more involved in engaging in policy dialogue, and they want them more involved in terms of sharing their expertise. And those three areas tend to be things that are kind of anathema or in contradiction with the non-interference policy (laughs) on the surface. You know, so if you're saying I'm taking a hands off stance, I want to let um, governments be able to determine for themselves what they want to do with the money. On the one hand, that is appealing from the no strings attached perspective. But from the other hand, when you're looking around the table and you're trying to decide what you're going to focus on, uh, you know, what are the most important priorities or how do I effectively do this or how do I learn from other actors? That may mean that China and other non-Western donors, they're not anywhere to be seen. They're not around the table helping make some of those decisions. And I think What leaders are saying is, yes, we want to be able to make the ultimate decision, but that doesn't mean that we want you to be absentee in the process of how we make these decisions. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa China Reporting Project at Witt University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at Vits China Africa or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. Let's take a look at some of the findings the, that, you, that you came up with from, from your survey. Uh, and again, this is finding number one. Uh, leaders emphasize education, jobs, and strong institutions, but turn a deaf ear to climate change and other environmental goals. Now, it's interesting that the split between those two is very, very relevant for our listeners in Africa in particular because the, the, so much of the China-Africa relationship oftentimes focuses on wildlife conservation, rhinos, elephants, pangolins and whatnot. And people will oftentimes say that there's not enough attention paid to the wildlife side. But at the end of the day, leaders want to focus on those bread and butter issues of education, jobs and strong institutions. Uh, Talk to us a little bit about finding number one about what you came up with. Yeah, so we found that, you know, then this is true across the world, but also in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, We find that over 60% of leaders uh, focus on education, jobs, and institutions, strong institutions as their top priority areas uh, for their countries to tackle. Um, And, you know, this is, I think... 
perhaps because leaders value the these things, you know, them for themselves, but also for the potential instrumental value. So, you know, stronger education is associated with a growing economy, with more uh, competitive jobs, you know, strong institutions. So by this, you know, um, good governance, low corruption, these things tend to be associated with a, a positive business environment and a strong investment environment. And so I think, you know, from the leader's perspective, they're thinking about are some goals able to uh, to serve as building blocks to other things for my society? And then for citizens, they're thinking, okay, you know, getting a good education, getting a job, you know, being able to trust my government. These are some of the most critical uh, issues that are most important to them. They're kind of like um, the most salient issues of all. But then I think what you see is there's kind of a sorting happening. And, and this is, of course, a challenge of the broader sustainable development goals agenda. Um, you know, the challenge is if you try to be inclusive and measure everything that you end up prioritizing nothing. Um, and what you see is a, is a sorting out here where people are emphasizing education, jobs, and strong institutions. On the flip side, some of the kind of, I don't know what I would say, the higher order, longer term goals related to the environment and climate change, um, you know, these are, these are often things that are, are far in the distance. And so leaders are very loath to, to tackle these issues that require large upfront costs in exchange for uncertain future benefits. And and what you see in addition is that citizens aren't really clamoring for this either. So you're not getting pressure from the bottom uh, either. And so I think um, you see this particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. And it's an interesting, you know, contrast between sub-Saharan Africa and East Asia and the Pacific. So East Asia and the Pacific is the only region of the world where leaders actually did emphasize uh, climate change and the environment to a higher degree. It actually fell in their top six priorities. But that's not the case for Sub-Saharan Africa. And so at first I thought, well, okay, is it something about climate vulnerability? You know, is it just that, you know, the the threats of climate change are so much more tangible for East Asia than Africa? Well, actually, that's not the case. The climate vulnerability index that was produced last year by another group, Maplecroft, found that East Asia and the Pacific is about middle of the pack in terms of vulnerability to climate change. Sub-Saharan Africa is the most vulnerable region of all. And so that's that's not what it is. Um, so my my running theory is, you know, that this seems like a nice to have. It doesn't seem as immediate and real and tangible and present to either leaders or citizens. And that's a problem for Africa. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I can see it here where, where something like access to education just ra outranks everything. Um, and, and climate climate issues are just seen as kind of abstract or far away or, or not not as, as immediate. Um, I, you know, that, that that is very much part of, of discussions in South Africa and I think even more in the rest of sub-Saharan Africa. One of the interesting trends that you identified was the issue of country ownership. And, mm -hmm. you know, the, the kind of a flip of, of traditional aid, which, is, which was quite a, a, a top-down, uh, you know, kind of being imposed from outside kind of model. Um, could you tell us a little bit about how country, what country ownership means and also then how China ranks in, that, in those stakes? Sure. So country ownership, um, you know, there are many different definitions, but I, in the purpose of this report, we talk about it in terms of 
donors paying attention to what countries themselves are prioritizing, what leaders and their citizens say are the most pressing problems to solve. And then in terms of making determinations about how to crowd in money to solve those problems and which particular reforms are necessary, that in my mind is country ownership. Um, And so that's kind of why we structured this report as we did. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of conversation about the need for donors to pay attention to what countries want, but it often boils down to either something in the abstract, like a principle that's nice to have, or it tends to focus on process. So did a donor pay attention to the national development strategy? But that's not really satisfying, I think, in terms of a clear roadmap for donors and how they should engage in the world. And so we uh, we actually triangulated priorities from three different groups for this report. So using our listening to leaders survey, we asked leaders in countries what they thought were the most important priorities. Uh, we then compared that to what uh, a UN survey called My World 2015 asked of citizens, 10 million citizens around the world. And then we compared that to um, the actual aid allocations of donors historically, where we mapped those aid allocations to each of the sustainable development goals as a, as a, as a way to look at their revealed priorities. And what we wanted to do was start a conversation and say, you know, cunt, maybe part of country ownership means that donors should be thinking about the points of convergence. So where where leaders and citizens are kind of unified in saying these things are a priority, those are quick wins. Those are, are low-hanging fruit for donors to engage. What we do see is there is some, some resonance there where you have donors like the U.S., the EU, the World Bank that are really focused on strong institutions. Um, you also see uh, you know, them focusing in other areas. But education tends to be a lower priority. Jobs tends to be a lower priority for donors. Perhaps they don't see that as their particular contribution. Um, For China, um, you know, I think so we talked before about the no strings attached and the non-interference. So from a process perspective, China does relatively well in terms of um, ceding authority to low and middle income countries to kind of determine how they're going to use um, their assistance. Now, there are some some concerns that are raised about whether there are just different types of conditions that are tied uh, to their assistance, whether it's voting, uh, you know, voting behavior in the UN General Assembly or, um, you know, stances on Taiwan, for example. But, you know, one question for China is, uh, you know, are they actually focusing on those areas of top convergence, education, jobs and strong institutions sufficiently well? Um, And then I think the question for, you know, the areas that are not high priority, I think that's an opportunity for for funders to engage in a conversation with national leaders and with citizens to talk about, well, why is this not a priority and what should be done differently? So the last survey was done in 2014. Then you did this one in 2017. Yes, so I right. presume that the next one will be done in 2020. Is that correct? Probably tw- Normally, 2019 if everything goes or right. 2020. Yeah, exactly right. Okay. 
So, so now I'd like you to do me a favor and, you know, you have a lot of resources at uh, William & Mary. It's a beautiful college and I'm sure you have a, a kind of a special, you know, future looking ball that you can kind of look into and see what's going to happen. So let's take a look into the future as our way to close out our discussion today. Uh, Donald Trump has made no secret that he does not like aid and he doesn't want to do aid. And the American people um, are generally not very supportive of aid when polling comes out. There's a new government in Italy uh, that is equally populist, and they have made it clear that they are there's a fatigue setting in there. And then the European Union as a whole um, is having a difficulty mobilizing its people around spending billions of dollars for aid. Uh, yet at the same time, Xi Jinping has come out and said he's going to ramp up aid and he's going to increase engagement in, in the world. So these tectonic plates of geopolitics are shifting right now very, very quickly. And I'd like to kind of get your sense of what you expect based on the trends that you've been seeing from the 2014 survey, what you saw in 2017, which incidentally was surveyed after Donald Trump came into office. So this does take into account the kind of this, the, the dramatic events that have happened in the United States. What do you see? Where do you see this going in the future in terms of the U.S., the West and China and then their engagement with the aid world and in the developing world? Yeah, those are, are big questions. So what we have seen from 2014 and 2017 and what I would anticipate is still going to be the case in the future is that um, the amount of financial assistance and the amount of engagement on the ground with policymakers, that those two things are very consequential when it comes to how policymakers in low and middle income countries view international donors. And so the, the consequences for the U.S. or for Europe or any donor, donor countries that are thinking about substantially pulling back either their financing or their, their ground presence, um, that, that could mean a reduction or a decrease in their, their ability to influence policy priorities and their perceived helpfulness on the ground. You know, we talked about that in terms of the overall size of their aid programs, but also their human capital, their ability to supply experts and expertise. And so I think that's, that's one factor. Of course, you know, as we, we talked about previously, you know, there are some smaller actors that have been, been able to capture fairly high performance ratings despite fairly modest means. But those actors tend to be more specialized and more focused. Um, the the Gavis and the global funds of the world, for example, or those that have a particular regional area of expertise. And so if some of these large um, bilateral donors decide to, to retrench or to drop back, uh, they have to think very carefully about where they should focus their efforts if they're going to be effective in terms of influencing policy change and supporting these actors. I think when you look to the future, and, and I will say for a moment, so the, the timing of the survey is interesting because the most recent one we conducted between January and March of 2017. So it was just after the, the election in the U.S., and so I would say that's that's a unique moment in time, but it does not necessarily uh, take into account the change into it change in in administration as fully. It was early days of the the Trump administration at that point, um, so it's possible to, that to a certain degree people started thinking about that. I think that's going to be much more in people's mind when we get out to 2019 and 2020. 
So I would say a couple of things to watch uh, and that I would be interested in asking in the next survey. So one would be uh, the reliability of donors. Uh, so, you know, the donors are prone to whims uh, in terms of, you know, how much assistance they're willing to give or what their policy priorities are. Um, and I think a question on the ground that a lot of policy makers have is, can I rely on this donor? You know, is this donor actually going to stand with me in following through on their commitments? And you see this with China, too, from people on the ground. So, you know, China's uh, aid commitments have been conducted with lots of great fanfare, lots of media attention. Um, but there's a lot of skepticism with, from people on the ground in many countries um, about whether, whether that money actually arrives and whether those projects actually break ground and will they be completed at the end of it. And so I think this, this question of reliability um, and staying power of donors is going to be very important. I think the second thing that I'd like to look at is what is the appropriate role of aid? So you alluded to the fact that, you know, leaders in low and middle income countries have more choice of how they finance their development than ever before. Uh, you know, they have more foreign direct investment opportunities, more tax revenues from their own citizens, uh, international aid of all different stripes, whether it's uh, private philanthropies like the Gates Foundation or some of the large bilateral and multilateral donors in the West or even China and India now. Um, and so the question, I think, becomes how can aid have a catalytic effect, you know, into what in what ways can it crowd in? private sector or, or, or domestic funds to have a bigger impact than just aid alone? Because we know aid dollars are shrinking. And so how can they do more with less by crowding in some of these other funds? And I think there's also a question, you know, we talked about priorities in this report. It occurs to me that, you know, some aspects of development, it may be more or less difficult to crowd in some of these other sources of funds. So are there certain parts of the development agenda or certain stages of the process that aid is particularly valuable because private sector investment is not yet confident to step in? Um, and so can aid be designed in such a way that it maximizes the ability to crowd in some of these other investments by adding value and making it safe for investment? And so I think those are some some interesting questions to pose in the next survey. And then finally, I think, you know, in terms of where do I expect the trends to continue? I think that if China and India continue to double down on their assistance and to continue to professionalize their efforts, it would not surprise me to see them increasing their influence and their helpfulness over time. Um, if Western uh, governments choose to substantially draw back or de-emphasize their financing or their investment in technical assistance, I would expect their scores to, to decrease over time. The book isn't written yet. We don't know what that will happen. But I think it is important, especially in the climate in the U.S. and elsewhere, where there's a lot of talk about the costs of aid. And it usually is tantamount to thinking about the size of their official development assistance. But what we don't often take into account are what are the costs of not doing aid or doing aid at a lower level or doing aid less well? Um, and I think there it's about seeding ground, seeding the opportunity to influence and support policy change in other countries, you know, to create strong, you know, trading markets that, you know, for, for goods, for services, 
the challenge of making these these countries a safer, more prosperous place to be that discourages um, instability or conflict. I think those are the costs that we don't talk about. Um, and so that would be my appeal is to say, well, okay, there are a lot of problems with aid. It doesn't mean that we should cut it. It means we should do it better. And I think part of that means listening to the voices uh, from the ground in places like Africa. Well, I think you are probably shouting into the wind in a city like Washington, D.C., where <laughs> the momentum really does seem to be. I mean, the, the proposed cuts from the White House to the, the USAID budget and the State Department are dramatic. I mean, it's only Congress that is holding back on, on the massive amount of cuts. But you might get an answer to your question, actually, by the time the next survey comes out about what the costs are of not funding these aid programs, given the way that the politics seem to be going, at least in Washington. So, uh, you know, that's it, it is it, it, it's not boring in your position. I'll tell you that listening to leaders 2018 is development cooperation tuned in or tone deaf. Cobus, I, I, there is a lesson there. That is a great headline for a report. Not of these boring academic headlines that you guys have. Tuned in or tone deaf. I love that. <laughs> so that's great. It is produced by A Data. The lead author on that was, is Samantha Custer, and she did it with a team of what four or five other people were on it. We they deserve some due credit for this uh, for the hard work they put into this. Yes, that's right. So uh, Matthew DiLorenzo, Taka Masaki, Tanya Seti, and Annie Haratun Union. It is a fascinating read. And so and it's what's done. What's nice about it is unlike some of these haughty toddy academic reports, which I'm not a huge fan of, this is actually accessible. Go to the Aid Data website. I think it's at aiddata.org uh, and you'll be able to find it easily. Uh, you know, it, again, people like me approach this whole subject with a very jaundiced eye. I was surprised by what I found, to be honest with you. But this is data that was done, again, surveying 3,500 policymakers in 126 developing countries, the second survey that they've done of this kind. So, Samantha, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. What if people want to follow what aid data is doing? What's the best way they can stay in touch with you guys? Yeah, so we are active on Twitter. So you can follow us there at, at aid data. Um, you can go to our website, aiddata.org. Uh, we do have a newsletter, so you can sign up for that. I think that's the best way to, to keep in touch with us. And we are regularly putting out new reports. And actually, I'll just highlight that we have a new one coming out at the end of this month on China's public diplomacy. Uh, and so I think Ooh. that will definitely be of interest to you all as well. So stay tuned for that. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your morning to join us. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Kobus, again, I've said it three times during the show. I was surprised, but maybe the day doesn't lie. This is a challenge on my own biases. What was your takeaway from her, from her comments? I found it fascinating. I, I, it's, it's very interesting for me to see how the aid system works and the, the complexity of it. You know, there still is the, the big question of, of how effective aid is. And maybe for me, most, more specifically, how ingrained it is in African economies. You know, is it possible for Africa to survive without aid? Um, that, I think, is a, is a big question. And, and, and it's one that, that I think these kind of reports clarify because they show you how complicated the system actually is. Well, it's important in our discussion on China-Africa, and it will be a topic, no doubt, of interest coming up at the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation Summit that happens in September here in China, where aid will definitely be on the agenda and how much China is going to give to Africa and support Africa. It seems like it's ramping up its aid program, 
And based on the data from aid data, it's got a lot of work to do to improve the perceptions of the Chinese, uh, because this is a report about perceptions. So let's see if that happens. So we'd like to hear what you think. Share your comments with us. Uh, email us. We've got links in the in in the description of this podcast. You can also go to our website at ChinaAfricaProject.com and leave your comments there. So we'll be back again next week with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. For Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Gwobas at Stadinsky or Eric at E. Olander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China in Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.